This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about virtual kidnapping. In 2017, the Associated Press reported on a troubling rise in virtual kidnapping scams across the United States. Though the type of crime itself had long occurred in Mexico and the southwestern United States, uh, particularly in cities like Los Angeles and Houston, that was changing. More often, the scams were reaching deeper into the U.S., and the details of each scam could be terrifying. In one real instance uncovered by the Associated Press, scammers targeted a mother named Valerie Sobel. Called from an unknown number, Sobel's phone rang, and when she picked up the line, a strange voice threatened the life of her child. Quote, We have someone's finger. Do you want to see the rest of her in a body bag? End quote. After hearing the threat, Sobel reportedly heard her daughter screaming through the phone. To avoid any harm, Sobel followed the directions of the criminals on the line and eventually wired $4,000 as a ransom payment. The problem, though, and somehow a relief, was that none of it was real. Sobel's daughter had not been kidnapped. Her daughter had not actually screamed, and the criminals speaking to Sobel were simply lying. Still, they'd made off with thousands of dollars. Virtual kidnapping may sound bizarre, as there's hardly a virtual element, Uh, any related threats are often made by telephone, and there's no physical kidnapping. But to better understand the crime, it's important to think of it from the lens of cybercrime. On the Lock and Code podcast, and more broadly at Malwarebytes, we track cybercrime, and that's historically meant things like ransomware infections and brute force attacks and Trojans and worms and exploits and vulnerabilities, right? But for more than a decade now, cybercrime has come to mean more than computer crime. It's also come to mean crime that is accomplished through the means of computers and smartphones. When romance scammers bombard widows and divorcees with affectionate messages on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram so as to eventually create an emotional connection and then plead for money, that's cybercrime. When hackers crack into a Facebook account and make a bogus post about needing money for some imagined emergency, that's cybercrime. And when criminals trick a family into believing their loved one has been kidnapped, And the only way to guarantee their safety is an immediate wire payment of thousands of dollars. That's likely cybercrime. And what all cybercrime has in common, what all cybercriminals want, is money. By faking threats to a family member, virtual kidnappers extort families into paying thousands of dollars in ransom fees for victims who, in truth, are entirely safe. And if you're thinking, why don't the targets of these scams just check to see if their loved ones are missing or not? Some of them do, and the scam fails. But some do not, because virtual kidnappers are skilled at deploying another common tactic in cybercrime. Urgency. As explained by the FBI in a 2017 blog post, quote, 
Unlike traditional abductions, virtual kidnappers have not actually kidnapped anyone. Instead, through deceptions and threats, they coerce victims to pay a quick ransom before the scheme falls apart. The scammers attempt to keep victims on the phone so they can't verify their loved one's whereabouts or contact law enforcement. The callers are always in a hurry, and the ransom demand is usually a wire payment to Mexico of $2,000 or less because there are legal restrictions for wiring larger amounts across the border. End quote. That's how virtual kidnapping scams went for a while, but not anymore. Today on the Lock and Code podcast, we have no guest interview. Instead, we are presenting a short true story from December about a virtual kidnapping scam that did not originate in Mexico, did not stop at just a few thousand dollars, and most shockingly, did involve a missing person. Ten years ago, virtual kidnapping changed. That's according to FBI Los Angeles Special Agent Eric Arbuthnot, who began investigating a string of virtual kidnapping calls in 2013 that originated not just from Mexico, but specifically from Mexican prisons. The plots back then were targeted. After bribing prison guards for cell phones, inmates in Mexico would identify Spanish speakers in the United States that they believed could be easily extorted in virtual kidnapping scams. The targets were predictable. People with Spanish-sounding names who could speak the language and high-paying jobs like dentists or doctors. Uh, Fun fact here, I would have fit half The target profile, as my full name, David Alberto Ruiz, translates pretty much to Spanish speaker, uh, but my title, on the other hand, podcast host, translates more accurately to debt haver. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. That's how it used to be. But in 2015, that tactic changed, said Special Agent Arbuthnot. Quote, in 2015, the calls started coming English. And something else happened. The criminals were no longer targeting specific individuals, such as doctors or just Spanish speakers. Now, they were choosing various cities and cold-calling hundreds of numbers until innocent people fell for the scheme. End quote. The virtual kidnapping scammers had picked up a new trick. They spoke English. Speaking in English may sound like the most obvious scam tactic to cast the widest scam net, but remember that one, English is not the most spoken language in the world, and two, many scammers are not fluent in English. For proof of this, look no further than the most common guidance offered for spotting phishing emails for the past 20 to 30 years. Look for the typos. We look for typos not because the criminals who write malicious emails did poorly in grade school in the United States. It's that they're often equipped with a separate first language. And the mistakes that seem obvious to you and I, like incorrect tenses, bizarre capitalizations, or just clumsy misspellings, are not obvious for them. Relatedly, the power to generate coherent text without being fluent in a language, as is now more readily possible because of tools like ChatGPT, poses a legitimate challenge for the future of phishing email awareness, because now entirely legible phishing emails are easier to produce. How fun. So, when virtual kidnapping scammers changed their language, 
they changed the game. When selecting targets, Spanish speakers were no longer required, and assumed incomes were forgotten. In fact, even the names of their alleged victims could be entirely unknown. According to the FBI again, quote, the incarcerated fraudsters would choose an affluent area such as Beverly Hills, California. They would search the internet to learn the correct area code and telephone dialing prefix. Then, with nothing but time on their hands, they would start dialing numbers in sequence, trolling for victims. When an unsuspecting person answered the phone, they would hear a female screaming, Help me! The screamer's voice was likely a recording. Instinctively, the victim might blurt out his or her child's name. Mary, are you okay? And then a man's voice would say something like, We have Mary. She's in a truck. We are holding her hostage. You need to pay a ransom, and you need to do it now, or we are going to cut off her fingers. End quote. At the time, this cold-calling approach was again an evolution in virtual kidnapping. Scammers targeted affluent neighborhoods, made hundreds of calls to entirely unknown numbers, and by pure chance, made thousands of dollars off single victims. And according to the FBI, these tactics proved effective. Across a two-year investigation conducted in the mid-2010s, the FBI identified 80 virtual kidnapping scam victims across California, Minnesota, Idaho, and Texas, who collectively lost at least $87,000 to their scammers. That's a significant sum when you remember that most of the scammers extort a couple thousand dollars per victim. But the main story we're sharing today represents yet another step for virtual kidnapping. By targeting just one family, the scammers made off with roughly $80,000. On Thursday, December 28th, at 8.30 p.m. in the Utah town of Riverdale, the city police learned of a kidnapping. 17-year-old foreign exchange student Kai Zhong was missing. It was his nearby high school that notified the police, and Zhuang's parents in China who notified the high school. But rather than simply worrying about a missing person, the police were worried about a kidnapping. As Zhuang's parents said, they received a photo that likely showed that their son had been taken from his home. They also reportedly received a ransom demand. That night, Riverdale Police Chief Casey Warren said in a press conference that law enforcement believed that Zhuang was, quote, forcefully taken and was, quote, being held against his will, end quote. The hunt was on to find the young teenager. In speaking with ABC4.com, Police Chief Warren said that because Zhuang could not be geolocated as his phone was turned off, investigators began elsewhere, obtaining warrants to search his recent bank transactions and phone records. A team was also sent to Zhuang's host family in Riverdale to obtain more information. At the host family's home, the first wrinkle showed up. Despite the photograph shared by Zhuang's parents that showed their child in distress, there was no sign of a forced abduction from Zhuang's home in Riverdale. In fact, Zhuang's disappearance was so quiet that his host family did not know he was missing until police visited them. As the search continued, investigators in Riverdale picked up another interesting piece of information. Zhuang was known to some Utah police officers. 
On December 20th, eight days before he was reported missing, Zhuang was stopped by police in the city of Provo, roughly 75 miles away from his home. In Provo, Zhuang had drawn attention for something benign. He was buying camping gear. But because of his age and because it was 34 degrees that night and raining, residents intervened, allegedly for his safety, asking for help from the police. The Provo police stopped Zhuang. They asked if he was okay, and Zhuang said he was, and he gave little more info than that, and they arranged for a ride back home to Riverdale, with little incident afterwards. But what the Provo police did not know is that already Zhuang had been facing his own extortion scam. When police back in Riverdale had searched Zhuang's phone records, they noticed that for some time now, Zhuang had been asking his parents in China to send more money to him than usual as part of his allowance, assumedly. According to ABC4.com, quote, investigators believe this was the start of the extortion scam. Police Chief Warren said it is believed the cyber kidnappers were threatening Zhuang with violence against his family if he didn't pay, end quote. Reportedly, Zhuang's parents pushed back on the requests for more money, but when Zhuang couldn't pay the criminals what they wanted, they tried something new. They didn't extort Zhuang with threats of violence against his family. They extorted Zhuang's family with threats of violence against Zhuang. In speaking with ABC4.com again, Police Chief Warren said, quote, it's kind of like a double blind, if you will, end quote. Still under pressure from the cybercriminals, Zhuang was likely forced to record messages of distress on Skype or FaceTime and to take believable photos that he had been abducted, which the criminals then sent to Zhuang's parents as alleged proof of his kidnapping. In all, Zhuang and his parents were extorted out of nearly $80,000. But if Zhuang hadn't been kidnapped and he was still missing... Where was he? The camping gear that Zhuang had purchased in Provo provided the biggest clue. Though investigators knew that the teenager had bought camping equipment, the equipment itself could not be found when searching Zhuang's home in Riverdale. This meant, most likely, that Zhuang was likely somewhere uninhabited, camping by himself, but risking death as the temperatures dropped and the snow in Utah climbed. For days now, investigators had searched the areas around Riverdale for Zhuang and found nothing. Their rescue efforts required new information. And in looking back at Zhuang's phone records, they found it. On December 23rd, Zhuang's phone had pinged a cell tower not in Riverdale, not in Provo, but somewhere else entirely. Brigham City. Three days after his trip to Provo to buy the camping gear, police believed that Zhuang may have set up a tent near Brigham City, only to return to Riverdale and then leave home on December 28th. By this point, the Weber County Sheriff's Office's search and rescue drone team and helicopters deployed by the Department of Public Safety had already been scouring the hills and unincorporated landscape for any trace of Zhuang, a tent, a used trail, anything. But in the end, it wasn't a drone, a helicopter, or any high-tech gadgetry that spotted Zhuang first. It was, according to ABC4.com, 
Riverdale Police Sergeant Derek Engstrom. Quote, while searching along a creek in the canyon, Police Chief Warren said Engstrom found an easy crossing point across the creek. He decided to hike up the trail near there and shortly came across Zhuang's tent. End quote. According to a press release issued by Riverdale Police after finding Zhuang, Police Sergeant Engstrom found the 17-year-old, quote, alive but very cold and scared, end quote. Zhuang had reportedly nothing but a sleeping bag, a heat blanket, limited food and water, and several cell phones that police believe were used to continue the virtual kidnapping extortion scam. From the Riverdale Police's press release upon Zhuang's rescue, quote, the victim only wanted to speak to his family to ensure they were safe and requested a warm cheeseburger, both of which were accomplished, <laughs> end quote. As to the virtual kidnappers, they have so far escaped justice as they are believed to be based in China, away from U.S. law enforcement's reach. Still, Police Chief Warren said he believes that Chinese officials will catch the perpetrators. And speaking again to ABC4.com, Police Chief Warren seemed relieved but resentful that the crime did not occur in the United States. Quote, I'm glad they are not here in the U.S., but I wish they were so we could hold them responsible. End quote. And for the young 17-year-old, there's hopefully happier times ahead. By the time of his rescue, his parents had flown back to the United States, and the family was soon reunited. They reportedly all flew back to China together. That's our show. And to our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at malwarebytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.